Silence can be awkward sometimes. It can be especially awkward when we need guidance and direction. In situations like that, silence can leave us feeling pretty desperate. I can remember not long after I passed my driving test, so I would have been 17, I was working at that time for a butcher. And this particular butcher had a contract to supply some of the Chinese restaurants in Belfast. Now, I am not at all sure what he was thinking, but he sent me out in a van by myself to deliver the meat to those restaurants. As far as I can remember, the only guidance he gave me was, you better watch your braking distance. All that weight in the back is going to push you along. That was it. Off I went with a list of addresses and a van very full of meat. Now, it did not occur to me that if you're going to deliver a large, clear plastic bag full of raw meat swimming in blood, you don't carry it through the front door of the restaurant. (laughs) You don't carry it past people who are trying to enjoy their plate of Kung Po or aromatic duck, or whatever it is. For most of that day, I could not figure out why none of the staff seemed to be pleased to see me. I was all at sea. I needed guidance and direction. It might have been obvious to most other people, but it was not obvious to me. Eventually, someone helped me out. They told me there's always a side or a back entrance. You need to find that. Now, what I experienced that day was really no big deal. The silence of my boss didn't get me in major trouble, although he never asked me to do that again. But imagine living without direction, not only at work. Imagine living without any direction in your life. Imagine you did not have access to a Bible not even on your phone. Imagine there was no church where you could hear God's message explained to you. Imagine living in what the prophet Amos called a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of God's word. Imagine searching for God's direction and not being able to find it. If you're imagining that, then you understand the context of the passage we're about to look at. This is our third week looking at 1 Samuel, and we are going to turn this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 3. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 273. And in the large print, page 420. 1 Samuel chapter 3. And I'm going to read all of chapter 3 plus the first sentence of chapter 4. Because as you'll see, it really belongs with chapter 3. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. 
In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons uttered blasphemies against God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. This is God's word. In fact, this passage not only is God's word, it's also about God's word. But as our passage begins, the word of God is nowhere to be found. Verses 1 to 3 describe a time of dark silence. Verse 1 reminds us that the boy Samuel is a kind of apprentice to Eli the priest. 
He lives with Eli at Shiloh. We saw in previous weeks, at this time, Shiloh is the main worship center in Israel. There was no temple. But then we're told Samuel is growing up in a spiritual wasteland. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Those are two ways of saying the same thing. Very often, God's word would arrive in the context of a vision. It would be accompanied by a vision, sound and sight. But Samuel is growing up in a time like the time Amos described. It's a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And this kind of silence from God is a sign of God's judgment. Here, we don't have to look far to find the reason for God's judgment. The leadership of the country is rotten. Chapter 2 told us Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are scoundrels. They are scoundrels who have no regard for the Lord. And by largely overlooking his son's sin and getting fat on the profits of their sin, Eli himself has been failing to honor God. And in this context, it's no surprise the word of God is rare. And it looks like things are going to get even worse. Chapter 2 told us Eli was very old. And here verse 2 tells us his eyes are becoming so weak he can barely see. We sense that Eli doesn't have long left. And while he has not been a great or in fact even a good leader, he's been the best Israel has. What's going to happen when he dies? Well, verse 3 gives us some hope. It tells us the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now, on one level, this is simply giving us the time of day. It's giving us the time to set the scene for what we're about to hear. Back in Exodus, God said that Israel's place of worship was to have lamps that were burning from evening till morning. It was a way of saying symbolically to Israel, God is at home. He's here among his people. So when verse 3 tells us the lamp of God has not yet gone out, it's telling us it's the middle of the night. But it's also reassuring us. God hasn't left. Yes, he is largely silent. It might seem like his presence is a faintly flickering candle. But the candle hasn't gone out. There's still light in the midst of all this darkness. And following that positive note, we then see God himself taking the initiative. Human beings can't end the famine of God's word. The initiative can only come from God. And that's what we find in verse 4. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Then God calls a second time with the same result. And verse 7 tells us, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. 
Back in chapter 2, Eli's sons were introduced in a very similar way. We were told they had no regard for the Lord. Literally, they did not know the Lord. The language might be similar, but there is a big difference. Eli's sons are living in defiance of God. They know his word, but they despise it. But Samuel is different. He does not yet know the Lord. Yes, he's been working at Shiloh, but he's growing up in a spiritually dark environment. God's word has not yet been revealed to him. And in that context, God is so gracious. These verses show us the God who calls patiently. Three times God calls Samuel. And three times Samuel reacts with ignorance and confusion. But God is patient. And God's approach here is not a one-off. The detail isn't just here to make the story a bit more dramatic for us. The detail is here to show us God's character. He is the compassionate and gracious God. He is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Where would you and I be if God gave up when we didn't get the message the first time? Where would we be if he got angry about our confusion? Maybe you're only starting to figure out what Christianity is all about. Maybe the Bible is still daunting to you. Please don't think that God is drumming his fingers somewhere, wondering why you're so slow. Don't think that he's waiting to throw something at you if you don't get it by tomorrow. If God was not a compassionate and gracious God, he would already have destroyed this world and started over. Every new sunrise is a sign of God's great patience. And when he begins to call us, he calls us patiently. How many of us can look back on our Christian lives and we realize we've spent more time running around than we've spent stopping and listening to God? But he kept calling. Maybe through a Christian friend who was persistent. Maybe through our Bible reading. Through things that we heard in a church. And eventually, one at a time, one penny after another dropped into place for us. The God we worship is compassionate and gracious, He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love and faithfulness. He's patient with Samuel. And eventually, Eli figures it out. Verse 8 tells us, after Samuel has come running three times, Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. And then verse 9 tells us, so Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls, you say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling 
as at the other times. Samuel, Samuel, then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. This is a defining moment in Samuel's life. God has called repeatedly. He's been patient with Samuel's confusion. But now Samuel realizes who's talking to him. Now there is clarity. And Samuel must not walk away. There's a big difference between confusion and defiance. God is patient with our confusion. But when the penny drops, when we finally recognize his voice, we must not defy him. You may have been feeling in a fog about God. But when the moment of clarity comes, when you're no longer able to hide behind your confusion, then you have reached a defining moment in your life. When you hear his voice, your response must be, Speak, Lord. I'm listening. And I'm ready to obey. I'm at your service. It's an amazing thing when God calls us. But as the Bible presents it, it is also a weighty thing. When God calls, the immediate reaction is not dancing and singing. There are times for that. But initially when God calls, it's a sobering thing. That's certainly the case here with Samuel. God gives him a difficult message. It's not difficult because it's hard to understand. It's difficult because it's heavy. It's disturbing. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him, that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons uttered blasphemies against God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. God is patient. He is wonderfully patient but he is not infinitely patient. If sin and rebellion were never punished, God would not be God. God's holiness would have no meaning. Justice would have no meaning. It would just be an empty concept. This is an example of God's patience coming to an end. It's time for justice to be done. And let's be clear why there's no way back for Eli and his sons. In chapter 2, we were told they scorned the Lord's sacrifice and offering. They treated it with contempt, we were told. They viewed it as nothing special. And so at this point, we need to stop and ask, why does God have the Israelites bring sacrifice and offerings anyway? Why did he set up the sacrificial system that we find in the book of Leviticus? Why all these bulls and lambs 
endlessly being slaughtered on a block and offered up on the altar. What's the point? It's to teach men and women that they need a substitute. They need to understand they are on the wrong side of God because of their sin. They stand under his wrath. They are under a death sentence. If something else doesn't die in their place, they will face God's wrath themselves. That's what the sacrifices and offerings are there for. Now, all those bulls and goats do not take away sin. They were never meant to. They were teaching Israel about the true Lamb of God who would come and die in their place. But until that true Lamb came, the system of sacrifices was a precious promise from God. It foretold the one sacrifice that would pay for their sin. And so those who were faithful to God treated the promise with great respect. They knew that faith in the promise was the way to be forgiven. When the true lamb did come, their sins would be covered or atoned for. And what all of that means is those who scorned the Lord's sacrifice and offering, those who treated it with contempt, there was no way for their sins to be covered. They would have to pay for their guilt themselves. And they would pay for it by an eternity of punishment away from God. The New Testament tells us that is what happens to those who reject the once-for-all sacrifice, God's true Lamb, Jesus Christ. This is what the book of Hebrews says. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the sacrifice of the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Let's make sure that we're clear on the point here. The point is not, once you come to Jesus, you have to live a perfect life to stay in Jesus' good books. No, the point is, once you see Jesus for who he is, the Lamb of God who died for the sin of the world, once that penny has dropped for you, then you dare not ignore him and plow on in your sin. You dare not say, I don't need him, or it's really no big deal. That is scorning the Lord's sacrifice and offering. If you do that, your guilt before God will never be atoned for. There is only judgment ahead for you. God is patient. But those who reject his provision have no hope. That is a difficult message. 
It's a difficult message to hear, and it's difficult to pass on. Samuel is still a boy, and he has to deliver this message to his teacher. He has a message of judgment for Israel's most powerful family. Not only that, it's highly likely Samuel has formed a great bond with Eli. For all the old man's feelings, he is like a father to Samuel. Twice in this passage, he calls Samuel my son. Remember, Samuel only sees his actual parents once a year. If Samuel delivers this message, he risks making enemies out of Hophni and Phinehas. And he risks ruining the closest human relationship that he has. So it's no wonder we read this in verse 15. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Previously, Samuel has been quick to run to Eli. But now he tries to keep busy. He tries to keep out of Eli's way. And there's a sense in which Samuel's hesitation is actually a healthy thing. He has a weighty message. There would be something wrong if he ran cheerfully to deliver that message. And there's something wrong today when any Christian speaks about hell and judgment as if they're somehow excited by it. How dare any of us speak lightly about those things? How dare we ever tell jokes about hell? How dare we deliver our message without first weeping in prayer for those who are going to hear it? Now, of course, there is another kind of fear. Fear for our own reputation. Fear of being rejected. And maybe Samuel was feeling a bit of that kind of fear too. But in the end, he fears God more. And he delivers the message. Look at verse 16. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. God is gracious to Samuel. He gives him a prompt through Eli. Eli says, you will face God's judgment if you try to deceive me. Tell me the truth. And that clinches it for Samuel. Samuel might fear the wrath of Hophni and Phinehas. He might fear losing his relationship with Eli. But Samuel fears God more. He delivers his message. And he shows himself to be a fearful, faithful messenger. The Bible does not present us with superheroes. Maybe we think of Bible characters that way. 
but they're not. It is normal for us to be fearful about delivering God's message. And so, fear is no excuse for us. God's greatest messengers experienced fear too. They were hesitant. Read Exodus chapter 3 later on and you'll see Moses' great fear. But whatever our fear of other human beings, let's pray for a greater fear of our God. Now, I don't mean a cowering kind of fear. I mean a greater reverence for his holiness and his power, for his worthiness. When we see God for who he is, then we will speak up faithfully for him in spite of all our other fears. Remember how this passage began. It began with a famine of the word of God. And then notice how the chapter ends. Verse 19. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. The title on the screen says, The Leadership Solution. And maybe we think that Samuel is the solution. And it's true that in Israel's crisis, God has raised up a faithful man. It almost seems like the only faithful man. Verse 19 tells us, None of Samuel's words fell to the ground. What that means is, his words proved to be true and trustworthy. But whose words are they? They're not Samuel's. They're God's words. Verse 21 makes that clear. The Lord reveals his word to Samuel. Then Samuel, who is God's messenger, delivers God's word to Israel. The leadership solution is not Samuel. It's God's word. This is key, in fact, to the whole book of 1 Samuel. What Israel needs is not just a leader. Israel needs a leader who leads according to God's word. A leader who is himself led by God's word. The famine in Israel was not a famine of human leadership. It was a famine of God's word. Israel had leaders... We have seen them, we saw them last week, and the trouble is they have no regard for the Lord and his word. Sometimes we act, or at least we think, that what we really need in Britain are Christian leaders with big personalities, impressive gifts, fantastic drive and vision, media skills. Then we think the tide would turn. The church would make progress. And I agree, gifted leaders are a great asset. 
But the famine in this country is a famine of the word of God. What we need are faithful church leaders and faithful church members. Men and women who love God and love his word and who are willing to speak his word in their own life situation. We need men and women who are willing to share the difficult part of the message as well as the happy part. And who will do it always with genuine love and care for those around them. So Samuel is an example to us. But he's more than that. At this time, he was the messenger of God. He has a unique role. So you and I can learn from Samuel's faithfulness. We can try to be faithful to explain God's written word. But none of us can claim to be direct channels of God's word. Our words are not God's words. Samuel stood in a special line of messengers who brought God's word directly. And the New Testament tells us about the ultimate messenger of God. The book of Hebrews says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus Christ not only delivered God's message, he is the message. That's why John's Gospel calls him the Word. We look at Jesus and we see God. We hear Jesus and we hear God. We see God's character. We see Jesus' death on the cross and we know that sin is serious. It has to be punished. We look at the cross and we also see that God is gracious. He has made provision for our salvation. Jesus died in our place. He earned life for all who trust in him. We look at Jesus and we see our holy, gracious God. Jesus is God's word to us. So how do we look at Jesus? How do we hear him? We turn to God's written word. The Bible is not just a collection of history books and poems and letters. It's a book about Jesus. The Bible exists to point us to Jesus and show us Jesus. The answer to our leadership crisis is to see Jesus and hear his voice. His promises are true. We can trust him. Jesus came to lead sinners like you and me home to God's presence. And we are going to take an opportunity now to praise him together. We're going to sing, first of all, you are the word of God the Father. And then I will stand on every promise of your word.